Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. All right. Shall we begin? No. <laughs> I'm having <laughs> I was having trouble finding it. <laughs> Shut up. And the podcast just ends, just cuts out no ending. and welcome to Backstage Gaming, a new podcast where we talk about theater and video games and put them together and take them apart. I'm Chris. I'm Dylan. And thank you so much for joining us. Um, today, uh, this is our second episode. We kind of rambled a lot in the last episode, and so if you listened to that and stuck with us, like, thank you. Um, yeah. We're going to try and be a little bit more on topic and a little bit more structured going forward. Um, and so... Dylan, why don't you tell us what our topic is? So, we have one famous action franchise got a revival this year, and next year we're going to have another famous action franchise get a revival. And the game that came out this year was God of War, and it was kind of a it was a it was a different take for the franchise. Um, and in the meantime, next year we have Devil May Cry Five, which is taking the formula established by Devil May Cry 3 and improving on it even further. So we wanted to look at uh, these two uh, different action series and look at how they're written, how they get the player character to, or how they get the player to identify with these, you know, very action hero, kind of, you know, in any other medium, they wouldn't be very, I it, w- it would be hard to identify with them. Um... And so we're going to look at that and how, in the game's writing and the game's uh, systems, how we make these characters easy to identify with. Yeah, and also with these both being reboots, um, you know, God of War 2018 being a pretty major reboot from the PlayStation 2 and 3 era games, uh, but also Devil May Cry experiencing a pretty major overhaul between the first game in the series and all of the subsequent games, we're also going to be kind of be looking at how those characterizations and how they have changed, yes, how those uh, characters developed and how those changes in character are reflected in the mechanics and the systems, especially with like major overhauls like those. Yeah. These are, these are two series that have had pretty major kind of rebrandings Devil May Cry 1 was a Resident Evil prototype. I feel like everyone who has like a passing interest in Devil May Cry knows that at this point, but for those who don't, um, Devil May Cry 1 feels like a Resident Evil game with like Castlevania elements. And so that game has had like a complete like identity shift 
similar to the one that God of War recently experienced. Yeah. Um, and to before we dive into sort of that granular look at these, I, I've been thinking that it'll be helpful because I want people to listen to this podcast, and I want people who maybe aren't super familiar either with the games we're talking about or with, like, these sort of theatrical takes we're going to be making uh, to feel like they can engage and to feel like they will know what we're talking about. So I think going forward, we'll sort of kick every episode off with a brief, like, theater theory lesson. Like, not going to get super granular, just sort of give you a grounding in, like, anything important to know to be able to get the most out of what we're going to be talking about. And so today I want to kind of talk about what we as actors and theater makers mean when we talk about character, because I think that's going to be pretty uh, major in informing how we talk about these games. Right. Um, Because, like, there is a pretty distinct difference between how I think about a character as someone who has to play a role versus how, like, you know... Even when I'm talking, I'm able to turn that part of my brain off when I'm talking about like, oh, this character in this book that I read or this character in this game that I played, there was a very loud car outside my window just then, so I hope that didn't mess up the recording too much. Um, probably didn't. Uh, living in the city, guys. It's great. Um, A+. plus. Yeah. You gotta uh, record in your closet like me. <laughs> I mean, if any of my closets were big enough in this apartment, I probably would. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so character from an actor's point of view uh there's a lot that's been written on that there's a lot that's been talked about uh that sort of opinion of like what that exactly means has actually changed a lot over the kind of centuries of western theater also kind of an important note i think that it has been implied but we haven't come right out and say it and we probably should most of our takes are coming out of like the western theater tradition um, yes, that's very important. <laughs> yeah, I have a passing familiarity with, like, the surface level of things like Kabuki. Uh, I've read some essays from Kabuki artists and, like, right. know a little bit of that world, but, like, am never, ever, ever going to claim to, like, actually know what I'm talking about <laughs> there. Where we're coming from is Western theater, like, based in the Greek plays and then everything that came out of, sort of, Europe yeah. and that world of theater. Um, yeah. Side note, I think it would be super, super cool if this podcast takes off and we can get like an expert on Kabuki theater to be a guest star that or like a guest so host. Cool. Right? Uh, yeah. Hey, Kabuki theater people who are listening to this podcast, reach out to us. We want to work us, with you. Hit us with the topic, please. But anyway, so the sort of Western idea of character that I find the most compelling actually comes from like the source. Uh, way back in the before times, a fellow named Aristotle. <laughs> wrote a whole lot of books, but one of the books he wrote was called The Poetics, and it is the sort of building block not just of theater, but of, like, narrative and storytelling. Yeah, storytelling. Um, like, you can find his footprints, the footprints of The Poetics, in, like, basically all of the Western storytelling tradition. And he had this interesting definition where he sort of broke what makes a story, what makes drama down into its component parts. Uh, and he sort of ordered them in list of importance. The most important one for Aristotle was action. Uh, action here meaning sort of the what we now conceive of as the through line of a story. So what, what is the thing... What a character does in any given scene. Yeah, well, yes and no. He He was putting it more in terms of like what you and I would call super objective. So like the... Yeah, the driving force that is pushing the story forward, what the people on stage are trying to do big picture wise, 
uh, and the consequences of that. Second place for Aristotle was character, and there are a couple of quotes that I pulled out of the poetics as I was prepping for this episode that I really like. Um, first he says, and this is, you know, one translation, there are other ways of translating this because, you know, ancient Greek. Uh, Dramatic action, therefore, is not with a view to the representation of character. Character comes in as a subsidiary to the actions, which is basically him saying character only exists insofar as the actions that are happening in front of you. When I say that I am getting into character, that is a whole bunch of, like, surface-level trapping stuff that goes on after I do the main job of figuring out what is happening on stage, because that is what's going to create, you know, the character as the audience sees it. Um, I, I guess, one... like, a good example... Sorry. No, uh, I guess, like, a good example is, like, maybe we could talk about, like, Kratos real quick. Like, what is, like, in the first God of War specifically, like, what is his character versus what are his actions. Yeah, and that's, I want to kind of work into that from this second quote that I really like. Uh, okay, he cool. says, character is that which reveals moral purpose. Other translations will say character is that which reveals decision, showing what kind of things a man chooses or avoids. Choice and, again, action is what creates character. There's another, I wish I could remember the, the name of the person who wrote this essay, but there's an essay I remember reading, um from like our intro theater class in college Mm -hmm. that said something to the effect of like character is entirely an illusion created by the audience based on the things that they see someone doing on stage it's an interpretation of the actions exactly and so to springboard from that right into god of war let's think about what we see kratos actually do in like just for example the first god of war game like if we take this idea that I very frequently find helpful when I'm doing like prep stuff for roles that character is literally just what you get when you put all of the things that the person is trying to do and choosing to do together. Who is, you know, PS2 God of War 1 Kratos? Well, he's very violent. He chooses a path of violence. But it's interesting to note that all of that comes out of an act of violence that was not his choice. He's tricked into killing his family and you know that is sort of his inciting incident that's what kicks off the whole action of this story and one of the things i love about the first god of war game is it's it is greek theater it is a piece of greek tragedy that blood and guts and chain swords aside would not have been terribly out of place being written by someone like euripides it's a story of a man who did something terrible and because of his you know his fatal flaw in kratos's case his rage continues to do horrible things but what he's trying to do these choices he's making are all in service of this action of wanting to make it right wanting to get some sense of closure and some sense of justice for this thing that the gods made him do this terrible act that he did i also find it interesting that um like in greek theater it's it's never like the full story it is it's been a while since i played the first god of war so i don't know if it takes place over the course of a couple days but it is a very specific moment in Kratos' life, just like a Greek tragedy is based on a very specific moment in Oedipus, for example, his life. Yeah. And, like, all of the things that are leading up to that come into it and are talked about, but you're seeing it happen in front of you. Again, all we really have to go on when we're creating characters on stage, you know, we can play lip service and we can give backstory, but that doesn't settle as much with the audience as what they actually see the person doing. 
to compare that to God of War 2018, yes, Kratos is still violent. Yes, there's still a lot of chunky jibs in God of War 2018. <laughs> <laughs> like chunky jibs. Chunky jibs. This game's gross. There's some like there are some gnarly animations in that game. I mean, um, yeah. <laughs> but think about like if I had to like put the action of God of War 1 into a sentence, I would say it is Kratos tries to get revenge on the gods. He's trying to exact vengeance for this thing that the gods made him do. That is a very clear through line. And then, you know, at the end, he realizes, well, I got that, and I don't feel better because my ends didn't justify my means, and I guess I'm going to jump into the ocean now. Um, and, like, it's a very, you know, again, it's a Greek tragedy. His fatal flaw is his undoing, and he tries to end it, and then they made more games because they made money. Um, <laughs> but then God of War 2018, its through line is so cool because all Kratos wants is to lay his wife to rest. The entire drive of that game is literally just Kratos trying to take his wife's ashes to where she wanted them to be scattered. Yeah. And, like, that gets wildly complicated. <laughs> But that's what they set out as your goal at the beginning, and the credits roll over you doing that. And that is such a cool, like, consistency that they build in, and it tells a very different story. Like, Gone is the Kratos who is, like, out for blood and vengeance. He just wants to be left alone to do this thing for his dead wife. And, he wants like, to mourn. Yeah. And also figure out what the heck to do with his son, but, like, that's also... <laughs> and, like, that's a, another... like. Atreus has some really cool through lines in that game, too. But, like, that is such a different story and such a different tone they're trying to set. And they mirror that with a wild shift in mechanics, which is rad. Like, that's something that you don't get in non-interactive media. Like, God of War 1, you know, it's very early 2000s, like, character action game. You've got these wide camera angles, fixed camera to really show off just how far your chain blades are whipping around... You've got, like, all of these different combos and things that you can build in. It's, like, a frenetic and fast-paced and violent game. And it is very big on this spectacle that you're Kratos, you are the god of war, you're, like, taking it to them. And then God of War 2018 reflects that more thoughtful, more personal story by making the camera much more personal. Like, a lot has been made. This is not, you know, by any means yeah. the first or even the 500th person to point it out. <laughs> that game's all in one shot, which is an incredible technical feat, but also it means you're never leaving Kratos's side. You're always right there with him, seeing what he's seeing, most of the time from right over his shoulder, and that creates a much more personal experience for the player. You're always right there with him. You ha you're hearing this banter between him and his son, you're hearing their relationship develop and seeing it, and you never get a break from that. You never break away and, like, come back later when development has happened off stage. It's all, like, all of the development and all of the growing relationship between these two characters happens right in front of you. And that's just such a different world from the one they were creating in the older series. I, I was going to ask, are there cuts away from Kratos in... The God of War games on the PS2 and PS3? I think so. I don't remember, in all honesty. It's been a very long time. Yeah, I have, like, I'm not going to pretend I went back and played through this game for this episode, but. Right. 
like, I think there are, or at the very least, you get a lot more, like, you know, you get the traditional, like, shot, reverse shot. You get the camera will pan away from Kratos to, like, show off the spec, like, the scale of, like, the sea monster you're fighting or whatever. Whereas yeah. in God of War 2018... In God of War 2018, it'll show it from Kratos' yeah, like, perspective. Like, I don't think there's a single wide shot in that game. Oh, that's a that's a good point, because I guess I, I was just thinking about the fight with uh, Balder, right? Yeah. Um, And how that is, you know, it, it never, like, flies away. You are always from Kratos' view, even as, like, the camera gets very disorienting and he's flying around. Yep, yep. That um, opening fight with there's, Balder there's is a lot also of... such a good, like, there's so many good character moments in that scene. Yeah. I love that game. I think there's so much good <laughs> stuff in there. I think it shows a real growth and introspection on the part of the people who made it. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember reading an interview somewhere that, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but the lead designer, who is the same lead designer as from the, the old God of game, War right? games. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's a dad now, and he's talked about how, like, him growing up and him coming into adulthood and him having these, like realizations about himself he wanted to make a game that was you know still for him in the same way that the first game was for him at that point in his life right also and this is like this is a tangent i just want to bring it up because it's like one of my favorite things about the making of this game mm -hmm. but i don't think anything shows the commitment that that team had to like really telling their story above all else mm -hmm. quite like the fact that they cast Atreus or Atreus they cast the son they knew they found the kid that they wanted yeah. to play oh, yeah, yeah. Kratos the son and then they had you know a whole bunch of actors come in and audition for the part of Kratos and anyone that they liked they then had do a chemistry test with the kid that was playing Atreus to see how like they played off each other and how their chemistry was in the recording booth and how their performances together were and the kid had like a pretty major say in whether or not an actor after that point would go on further into the process. There, there was a huge commitment there. Yeah. Um, it's like, which one of these is your real dad, kid? <laughs> <laughs> and like, I love that. I think that shows a real respect for this story that they wanted to tell and also a respect for, you know, this kid Child that they actors. have. Yeah, this kid that they have in their studio. Like, that's awesome. Also, yeah, let's... <laughs> I mean, like, this This is kind of a tangent right now, but, like, Atreus, really great child actor. You don't get a lot of those. Oh, yeah, super talented. Like, even when the game wants you to think he's a little shit, he's able to deliver on that, but not so much that you don't forgive him when his character, like, comes out of that. Yeah. Oh, what was it? There was something I wanted to talk about that was also, like, maybe a little bit of a spoiler. Oh, are we are we still within the Statue of Limitations on spoilers for God of War? I mean, I think, if nothing else, you can probably say there's going to be a spoiler at this timestamp, and then... I'll keep this really quick. Uh, if you don't want any God of War 2018 spoilers, skip ahead. Like, I'm gonna just say 30 seconds, and then I'll talk very fast. 30 seconds from now. There is a moment in God of War 2018 where you spend most of the game with the Leviathan Axe as your main weapon. And oh, then yes. Kratos okay. realizes that he is going to need the Blades of Chaos again. He's going somewhere where the axe is not going to be effective. And you get to see him make this choice to go and get this weapon back. And mm. I think that's so cool. They, you get this moment of like Kratos making a choice. And Kratos really not wanting to make that choice, but realizing that this is what he has to do if he wants to accomplish this goal of like, his. He, he rubs the scars on his arms. 
It's and such it's, a cool it, moment. It's a great build-up. Really, really, really cool moment in that game. Again, just showing, like, this is a character that you are learning all about because of the choices that you are seeing him make. And most of, for most of the game, you are making along with him. You are an active participant in this story because it's a game, which is super cool. And then we see kind of the opposite shift. You know, God of War goes from frenetic action game to much more thoughtful, story-driven, like, character experience. Which I, I know that a lot of people have, like, mixed feelings on, like, the different gameplay structure of God of War. I feel like, you know, at least in my mind, God of War's biggest selling point has always been, like, its spectacle and its story. In my mind, I feel like it's a little bit more forgivable that, like, it would so drastically and radically change what it's doing because yeah. the priority is different. Yeah, the priority is different, and you still get spectacle. It's just presented slightly differently. It's, it's a different, and it's, yeah. It's still got, like... I think God of War 2018 is, like, a very tight and challenging and rewarding system as far as, like, the combat goes. It's just different. And I think that the differences make for an interesting parallel to the story, if nothing else. I'm not going to tell you one is better than the other, just that I think that it shows a great deal of thought about how their systems and their story work together that they made the choices that they did in making God of War 2018. Like, Um, I don't think, you know, after having seen... Excuse me, burps. That's not good. Um, after having seen Chris uh, play through God of War, it is more than just a God of War skinned Last of Us in in more ways than one. Yeah. I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you get this sort of very much toning down of the spec. Like, the spectacle is still there, but they shift the focus away from spectacle and frenetic action into a more personal narrative with that reboot of God of War that it just received and a little bit of the opposite can be said of what happened between <laughs> Devil May Cry 1 and Devil May Cry 2 as I understand uh, Devil it. May Cry 3 actually Chris. Do we just not talk about Devil May Cry 2? Devil... We'll Is that there. the shadowy place? Must I'm, we never I'm go gonna... there? <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna, Is that I'm gonna the upside do full down? breakdown. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go through the full okay. the full breakdown. Okay. Um Devil May Cry is a repurposed Resident Evil sequel prototype. Um, There's different sources saying what Devil May Cry was originally intended to be, but for all intents and purposes, it was originally going to be a game about a mercenary battling zombies and other Resident Evil bioweapons. That being said, uh, eventually it became the weird pseudo-Castlevania action Matrix movie uh, we know it as today. <laughs> Sonic the Hedgehog with a sword, but not yes, Sonic in the uh, Black Knight. <laughs> Devil May Cry is Blade by way of Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> <laughs> Blade Runner, if you will. Oh, no. <laughs> Harrison any- Ford is Sonic the Hedgehog is oh my Agent Deckard. So, you know about the Sonic the Hedgehog movie? That is actually a thing. Wait, which one? Oh my god. Alright, we'll have to talk about this after the episode, but you need to be educated. <laughs> is it the one you've shown um, me? No. No, it's not It's not the anime OVA. Uh, there is a Sonic movie that's, ha- like, live action. I think no. Jim Carrey's playing Robotnik. <laughs> <laughs> and, like... There's a guy from uh How have I from... not found this fever dream before? Not not arrested development. What is the uh um 
it was either a 30 rock star or a um parks and rec nick offerman star. i don't know no i okay but I, now I all wanna, i want I in my life is up. nick offerman as dr robotnik all right, one sec sonic the hedgehog movie yes this is important we're keeping this in oh yeah i mean i'll, I'll edit it down but like this is staying this is this is why people come to our ch- content okay okay here we go uh on the wikipedia <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see. Sonic the Hedgehog is an upcoming American live-action animated film Wait, based upcoming? on the Sonic. <laughs> I thought you were talking about the past. I thought you were talking no. about a darker no, age. There's, there's a movie coming out. The scheduled release date is November eighth, twenty nineteen. So, Chris, what are you doing in a uh, year? Flying to Cleveland to watch this movie with you. Exactly. <laughs> um. <laughs> so, the film. It's written by Patrick Casey, Josh Miller, and Oren Uziel. None of those names uh, mean anything story... to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. The film stars Ben Schwartz as Sonic the Hedgehog <laughs> and Jim Carrey as Sonic's nemesis, Dr. Eggman. Ben alongside... Schwartz? <laughs> <laughs> alongside James Marsden as Tom Wachowski, uh, Tika Sumter, Natasha Rothwell, Adam Pally, and Neil McDonough. Uh I probably mispronounced that. Oh my god. Forget it. Who asked for this? What studio head was on like so, fanfiction.net and just thought I know what must be done. So at first like I, I have was, a dream now. I was of the mind like this is the this is the trash fire that <laughs> I always wanted. And as time has gone on, I'm like, wow, even I did not want this trash fire. <laughs> This garbage fire got too hot for Dylan. Like, like, you know, I I love uh, Jean Claude Van Damme as Guile in the Street Fighter movie. Like, that is a terrible movie that oh, but I love. So good, you know. Even forgettable video game movies like Prince of Persia. Like, I still enjoy that movie. Like, I love watching these mediocre to terrible video game <laughs> movies. I have no clue what to expect from Sonic, like, from Ben Schwartz's Sonic the Hedgehog. Alright, that's been our type 5 on Sonic the Hedgehog and his upcoming film debut. Um, Wait, wait, I'm sorry, one more thing, Schwartz will provide Sonic's likeness via motion capture. (laughs) No, he won't! Okay, Wait, so okay, okay, you know there's you know there's behind the, the voice scenes. Of Sonic, a mysterious anthropomorphic, quote unquote, juvenile delinquent blue hedgehog who can run at supersonic speeds and is on the run from the government. Oh my god. Okay, so you know all that behind the scenes footage from like the Hobbit movies where you see Benedict Cumberbatch having the time of his life yes. uh, doing the mocap for smog? Yes. All I want is that behind the scenes footage, but it's just this poor man who's being anamorphed into Sonic the Hedgehog, like, <laughs> sobbing in a corner. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. I, I also think we, the we name need... of the town is Green Hills. I'm sorry. We yeah, need to, let's, we let's need to get, get off this train before we... <laughs> we leave our podcast behind and start a new one. Anyway, no, back I'm, to I'm Devil sorry. May Cry. That was all pertinent information. Oh, that was beautiful. I don't know about you. Oh, no, um, I'm, I'm keeping every bit of that. <laughs> good. So, okay. Devil, Devil May Cry. Devil May the Hedgehog. <laughs> Blade by way of Sonic the Hedgehog, <laughs> starring Ben Schwartz. Okay, so the the way Dante is depicted in the first game is a far cry from how he's depicted in the rest of the series from three on. 
so the vibe I I get from Dante in the first Devil May Cry is, um, I, I I described him earlier as like a Van Helsing character, um, off off the air, but I I think a better way to describe him is he's he's kind of a modern day Witcher. You know, he's the guy who like people call to be like there's some weird messed up creature that's acting crazy and we need someone to do something about it, and you know Dante will be the guy who comes in and cleans up that mess. There's a lot of text in the instruction manual that, like, kind of builds a little bit of lore and backstory for Dante that isn't in the game. Essentially, the the way that Devil May Cry 1 plays is you have a much more limited weapon pool than what you would get later. Um, Dante in the original Devil May Cry uses swords, three ty- uh, four types of firearms, and hand-to-hand combat. And that is it. And anyone who is familiar with the later entries in the series... That is a tiny number. (laughs) Um, I'll get into some of the weapons later when I'm talking about Devil May Cry 3, but... Yeah, so in Devil May Cry 1, Dante has, like, roughly... Like, five weapons that you're really going to be using regularly. um, And three of those are guns. So, each enemy kind of has its own specific strategy to be killed. The game actually has, like, an in-game bestiary slash strategy guide that tells you what the strategy to kill it is. Uh, The way it kind of frames it is like a real demon killer would kill this like this and so uh, it's it's really just kind of hints and like telling you like the most effective strategy to taking on each thing which gives dante's character and the actions he does as like it's it's a lot more methodical it's it's more based on like it is a situation to situation basis yeah and like i love that because for one thing it makes your actions as dante feel very like professional and utilitarian and like I am the best at what I do and therefore I'm going to handle this like a goddamn professional I'm going to do my job but also it lets you get into this like semi role play kind of place of like I want to be as much of a badass as this character I'm playing so I'm going to read the like demon slayer manual that has been provided to me and become this badass like the professional demon hunter and i think that's so cool uh something i just remembered is in one of the devil may cry 5 trailers um the nero the main character of devil may cry 5 gets a manual from the person who who he's more or less dante's agent um he's the one who uh, gets the jobs for dante um and so like i don't know how much of a thing that's going to be in like the game but like it it was something really cool i think it was just like to show off like that's how you get like the controller manual or something but who knows maybe there'll be uh maybe it's also going to be strategies for taking down the different enemies prima's demon hunter strategy guide (laughs) yeah exactly no that's like it's such a cool little touch it's like little things like that that can add a lot more weight and a lot more meaning to like what you as a player are doing and I think yeah. that, like, game makers that capitalize on that are making a very smart choice. Because, like, that took, like, n- compared to the rest of the work they were doing making the game and compared to how hard it would have been to, like, get that through actual mechanical systems, that took, like, no work on their part Yeah, to add that manual function into the game. So, like, A+. plus, Very cool. So, uh, Devil May Cry 1 is also, it's, it's really this, like, personal revenge story. Um, the inciting incident of... <laughs> Sorry, I just realized how ridiculous this is going to sound to you who has never played Devil May Cry 1. Oh, I'm excited. The inciting incident of Devil May Cry is a woman riding a motorcycle crashes into Dante's office and 
beats the shit out of him, but then says, I'm sorry, I was testing you. <laughs> we think we found the uh, the demon that killed your mother and brother, and we, like, I want to hire you to help me take him down. Now pick your butt off the floor where I put it, get on my motorcycle, we're going on an adventure. <laughs> oh no, she threw the motorcycle at him. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino's she... Blade Runner. <laughs> Starring Sonic the Hedgehog. She, she throws the motorcycle at him, and he's just like, yeah, whatever. And he takes out his dual pistols, like, charges them with demon energy and shoots them away. It is... Oh, my God. Like, for a series that, like, is kind of known for it's so dumb, they're awesome cutscenes. Like, that is literally the dumbest it's ever been. And that in the game where they took themselves the most seriously. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I love that. All the same, like, the the inciting incident is essentially that Dante is told that, like, he will be able to avenge his his mom and brother. And that, that kind of sets the tone for the whole game. That and the, the crazy, stupid action set pieces. But, like, they're, it's really kind of toned down after that. <laughs> it never gets as crazy as throwing a motorcycle at our protagonist. <laughs> um, so, because it's a revenge story and because it's a not resident evil game there's there's this very dark oppressive atmosphere the game takes place in like this old spanish castle think resident evil 4 and it has slowly been taken over by a demonic presence so there's a there's a lot of really interesting use of ambient noise to really set the tone it's like a lot of droning and like not quite silent hill noises but like i i think you more or less get what i'm yeah trying to say but like occasionally like you'll hear like the music of like a royal ball start to bleed in which kind of gives like this vibe that like this place is just stuck in time it's this very gothic feel very cool um, i think another interesting thing about devil may cry one is that like there's this implication that like the world is having an effect on dante's psyche there's a boss late in the game called nightmare and what it does is it can essentially pull Dante into itself and like transfer him to like a nightmare dimension where Dante has to fight. He has to fight these uh, like the bosses he's taken on prior in the game. And the, the most interesting thing about that is if you go to the files in the bestiary and look at the entry for nightmare, it says that these boss fights are like pulled from Dante's trauma. So, like, it's, like, actually canon that, like, Dante is, like, terrified of these things he's fighting, and he's just kind of hyping himself through it. That's rad. And again, yeah. character being action. Like, character is not what you say about a person, it's what you see that person do. And here you're, like, that is making Dante into this very brave and very, like, heroic character because you actively see him and, you know, as him, confront his fears. And that's really cool. Like... A plus, I love that. Yeah, like, I think the game wants, the game is expecting the players to be kind of freaked out by the atmosphere, and your mileage might vary on that, but, like, there's there's a really cool, creepy vibe to the first Double May Cry game um, and that then... hasn't really been replicated <laughs> since, but, uh, so, before I move on to Double May Cry 3, or 2, it, we'll get there. Um, uh, both of these, uh, personal revenge story and the oppressive atmosphere both tie into this sense of Dante's aggression. So the scoring system in Devil May Cry 1 is different from later games in that it only grades you based on the amount of pressure you're able to keep. So how many, how many attacks you're able to do in a short amount of time. 
uh, later the series also evaluates the variety of moves you do. Uh, whether or not you get hit, you'll get points depleted if you get hit. Yeah, so I, I guess like it, it characterizes Dante, since I already established that like he uh, he's fighting through his fear, it, it kind of gives Dante's fighting style a bit more of an aggression to it. So you are waiting for the enemies to be vulnerable, and then you just go in and you don't relent, and that is what the game rewards. And that's what the game considers stylish, uh, because like it still has like the little style ranking yeah. as you fight. <laughs> that also ties into this idea of like this version of Dante being a professional, being efficient, being like, I don't need to be flashy, I just need to get the job done as yeah. efficiently as I possibly can. So Devil May Cry 1 is a smash hit. It's, you know, it, it's one of the first few, I think it was in the first year of the PS2's lifespan, so that definitely helps. Um, and so, you know, obviously a sequel's going to have to be made because, you know, why wouldn't we? That's free money. Um, and they released Double May Cry 2. It was done by a completely different team. I don't even think they had, like, a real director until, like, the last four months. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, no, um, Hideaki Itsuno, the current director of the Devil May Cry series, was kind of added to the series, at, uh, added to Devil May Cry 2 at the last minute to try to get a product out. Because before then, I'm, I'm assuming they just had, like, a bunch of, they had, like, hallways and they had, like, a basic physics engine, but, like, nothing beyond that. So, yeah, no, Devil May Cry 2 is not a good game. And I think the, the biggest thing that people will decry for that of that game is the way Dante is handled in that game. So Dante in the first game is like a wisecracking person who also has a personal revenge story, but the impression he made on players was like Blade by way of Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, that none of that is there in the second game. In the second game, Dante is very much a... I want to say Vampire Hunter D, but because no one knows who that is, um, he's very much like a I certainly don't. character. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, I know one or two listeners out there knows Vampire Hunter D. <laughs> and they're probably um, fist pumping right now. Yeah, hey. <laughs> he's, he's more or less Clint Eastwood. He's the man with no name. He has no personality. He has, like, no real talking lines. The, the whole thing about, like, the man with no name is, like, you know, he just kind of grits his teeth and he's cool and manly and doesn't really say anything. But when you already have an established character, you know, taking that route feels kind of cheap. Itsuno directed the last four months of development for Devil May Cry 2 and he was like, I don't want to be known for this. This sucked. So Devil May Cry 3 comes out and it is the walk back of the century. So... <laughs> The only, I guess, like, in their minds, the only way they could fix the characterization in Devil May Cry 2 was to just go back in time. <laughs> so Devil May Cry 3 is a prequel, and it stars a younger, immature Dante. Hideaki Itsuno has, to refer to, like, what they look for when making Devil May Cry games, Hideaki Itsuno uses a Japanese term called chuni, which is, it's, it's like a term for, like, things that appeal to middle schoolers. <laughs> um and you know i feel like Dante... i like that they have a term for that <laughs> yeah like it is very much like that kind of indulgent like inner child type of appeal okay that is that is what dante is um there's the new scoring system which rates your style like style based on like the variety of moves you use do you get hit or not? Because, like, this Dante, he's trying to show off. If he gets hit, that's not cool. If Devil May Cry 1 was about, like, killing 
your enemy as fast and as, you know, efficiently as possible. Devil May Cry 3 is about showing off. Dante has way more uh, weapons. He has some very impractical weapons, too. He's got, like, a three-headed nunchuck named Cerberus. Um, It's also Ice Elemental because, of course, it is. Um, He's got... (laughs) He's got this electric guitar that shoots electricity bats called what the Nevin. Fuck? Ah, dude, Devil May Cry Three is a trip. If you oh have to play God. one game in this series, make it that one or five. Five might be amazing. I don't know. I mean, you recall no you made yet. me play the opening of Devil May Cry Three no, in college, like, and I was like, "I'm a hard boy," and played it on hard and did not do well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, actually, sink your teeth into yeah, it. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm like sure it's good. It's it's a good time. I'm gonna I'm gonna be the DMC hype man. <laughs> so I, I guess like this very showoffy fun Dante ties into the the themes of this game because it, it it kind of like takes the detachment a player has from the world in a game and like I don't want to say is meta about it but like they they do things that make so the fact that Dante is immature and doesn't really care about what's going on in the game weirdly makes him more relatable. Um, I think uh, another example is if anyone's played Metal Gear Rising Revengeance <laughs> there be- is that scene my best best friend <laughs> there is that scene where Raiden is just like you're right I love killing <laughs> and you know like all of his his color scheme changes from blue point, to red to reflect that he's bad now <laughs> like everything about that game that took itself seriously just stops and is yeah. like yeah no we're a dumb action game and we're going to revel in that now and that is, I feel like that really started with this Dante. He even treats the world-ending events that are going on as a game. The inciting incident of Devil May Cry 3, and there is a retcon where um, Dante knows his brother is alive. Plot twist in Devil May Cry 1, Dante's brother is alive. <laughs> but uh, in, in Devil May Cry 3, this weird, strange man shows up and says, Yo, your brother called you a bitch. And then he leaves, and then like this giant monolith of evil like just bursts into the city and Dante's like alright this is gonna be fun and he just goes to like fight his brother this'll show big brother that I'm not a bitch exactly like (laughs) that is the that is the plot and he doesn't really have any investment in the actual goings on of the story until I want to say the midpoint um and I'm I'm not gonna get into that too much but Dante is you know he he's not a witcher anymore he's a superhero he he's this detached superhero character who isn't really fighting through any trauma like all these demons in the cutscenes are kind of shown to be beneath him it's it's a competition between him and his brother to see like who can look cooler while killing all these different demons other mechanics that reflect this is Dante's new ability to taunt enemies that also gets you sto- uh, stylish points um <laughs> certain guns have been retooled a little bit to they don't give you more style but they're used to keep style from dropping and just like little tiny things like that like are all in that game to give it a completely different impression and wouldn't you know it uh that devil may cry 3 is a smash hit and so what was originally supposed to be an origin story for dante for like how he matures and comes into his own like into the witcher that we see in devil may cry one that is now kind of his established character um in devil may cry 4 dante is the jack sparrow character uh because nero is the main character of devil may cry 4 but you know dante is playable for a third of that game devil may cry 4 just for me and for you know our listeners who might not know where does that fall chronologically okay that is a good 
call. So the chronological order of the Devil May Cry series is three, one, four, two, and now five. (laughs) 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 Which, like, as the games are coming out, like, it's easy to keep track of then. But, like, I realize anyone who's, like, new to the series... (laughs) Like, what the fuck? They have to deal with that. But, yeah, so anyway, Dante is... I guess the argument can be made that, like, now that Dante has avenged his mother, he can feel free to be, like, more laid back. And it's kind of implied in Devil May Cry 4 that the stakes are very low for him anyway. Like, he can save the day at any time, but he's he's just kind of messing around because he's like, nah, if... If the real main character can't solve this, then like whatever. It's I, it's it's a very weird. A lot of the writing in Devil May Cry uh, Four specifically is weird, and I think that's because it had a rush development. It looks like Five is bringing the stakes personal to Dante again. So you know, I don't necessarily need the Witcher that we saw in Devil May Cry One, but it would be nice to kind of have a restraint. <laughs> yeah, and it'll be interesting to see that. But I also kind of want to bring up. Uh, one of the things that I think is so interesting about sort of the shift from one to three, with them going sort of back in time to deal with that rather than going forward, that's actually a technique that I use as an actor when I'm having trouble with a oh, role. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Like, I will, if I'm having difficulty breaking down a scene and figuring out what I'm trying to do, like finding those kind of component actions that I can actually do on stage, what I sometimes find helpful is like, I'll go to the end of the scene. And I'll think, like, okay, what is the thing that happens that lets the scene end? Like, what is the important change that occurs that is the reason that this scene is in the play? Because if there yeah. wasn't something like that, the scene wouldn't be in the play. We wouldn't have right. to worry about it. And then from that, I'll be like, okay, if that's the important thing, what happens right before that to make that happen? And then what happens right before that? And I'll work my way backwards until I get to the beginning, and I'm like, oh, now I have a through line. Yeah. And that's kind of what the DMC team did with just the entire character of Dante. Like, they knew where he ended up. He ended up as this, the professional demon hunter guy in Devil May Cry 1. So, like, okay, who is the kid that grows into this man? What are the experiences that happen to somebody to turn them into this and they work their way backwards and they're like oh before you get to be that competent you've got to be naturally talented and kind of a shithead (laughs) yeah you gotta you have to learn that responsibility and i think that's a really cool way that they kind of found their way to what is now this very iconic character just by like working backwards and taking that kind of like all right how do we get to where we need to be approach and i'm very curious to see if there is serious forward movement past that professionalism and that kind of then detachment in Devil May Cry 4 into what we're going to see in 5. I think it'll be interesting to see how they handle yet another stage of life for this character. Uh, it's it's kind of funny that you brought that up because um, I learned this, I, I want to say a couple days ago, but um, the writer for Devil May Cry's 3, 4, and 5, uh, Bingo Morihashi, he has complicated feelings on writing for Dante. Because, you know, it, it was an established character that is not his. So he's, mm-hmm. he doesn't... He's said in interviews that he's never felt like he's nailed Dante's character exactly. Gotcha. Like, with 3, he kind of had the freedom to do what he wants because the implication is that he grows into Hideki Kamiya, uh, creator of Dante's... Dante. 
but he's never felt comfortable writing Dante in four, for example. Uh, right. And he only agreed to come back for five if Nero was going to be the main character because Nero is his. That makes um, sense. Yeah. So that is something that's really interesting to see. Um, I also know that Bingo Morihashi worked with Hideki Kamiya on Bayonetta 2. So who knows? Maybe he feels a little bit more comfortable with the character now, but I don't know. Devil May Cry 3 or uh, Devil May Cry as a series honestly it has like a lot of really interesting political things going on with it so it'll be kind of interesting not political things but you know like has different creative takes on it yeah political um, in it, that like in like the group effort sense not in the like yeah politicians and stuff i get what you mean like it is it is a very different series from like the person's original version yeah who knows? Um, but it, it's kind of interesting that, like, they still have this respect and kind of fear of the original. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, even though they made the more popular version of the character, they feel like they can't escape from its shadow. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's going to be interesting. I'm excited for Devil May Cry 5. So, yeah, that is sort of all we had to say this week. We hope you enjoyed going with us on this kind of deep dive into character creation character writing character portrayal in these games and how those sort of changed um character action character action actors we really missed the boat we could have called our podcast that oh no (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) thank you thank you thank you so much for listening um if you enjoyed what you heard if you like what we're doing please continue to tune in we're going to be putting these up every week And please tell your friends, tell your family, tell people who you think would be interested in sort of our takes on either games or theater. We're trying to sort of keep it broad enough that we can be interesting to everybody. You can... And thus we appeal to no one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, it's true. Um, We are not going to be paying to advertise you're not going to be seeing banner ads for our show so we're going to kind of make this grassroots and really rely on you our listeners to help us grow this podcast so that we're not just talking into the void please feel free to tweet about us uh i'm going to try and get the hashtag bsg pod off the ground so hashtag bsg pod get that trending uh help us grow you guys rock thank you so much for listening yeah if you would like to tweet at us we are at bsg underscore cast at twitter.com <laughs> that's our email that's not our email um, <laughs> i want to give a big old thank you to our friend BioQuery. um he wrote and performed our theme song which is an excerpt from his piece dot sound radio volume one instrumentality uh, I went to college with BioQuery. I was in a couple music groups with him. He's super talented, super fun, and you should check out the rest of his awesome experimental electropop music at soundcloud.com slash BioQuery. That's soundcloud.com slash B-I-O-Q-U-E-R-Y. Go give him a listen. And the wonderful banner for our site? Is it a banner or is banner it Banner like logo. A... The, our image. Our brand. Okay. Our, our brand. Our brand. Um... Huge, massive thank you to our friend Brennan French for our banner, our brand. Um, you can, if you like his art, you can check him out at brennanfrench.squarespace.com. That's B-R-E-N-N-E-N hyphen French 
www.squarespace.com. Um, and finally, you can, of course, feel free to check out our website. It's uh, bsgpod.com. Right there, we're going to have our episodes, obviously. We're also going to have a little bit of info about the show. We'll have bios about me and Dylan. I'm thinking, like, I'm, I'm still putting the finishing touches on the site as we record this. We're recording this a little bit before we actually launch the podcast to bring you all backstage for a backlog. moment. But I'm thinking I might even put up, like, an area for like news for the two of us so that as we have things going on we can sort of publicize them there we'll also have a contact form there so you can reach out to us with any questions anything you want to hear us talk about episode suggestions um or just like questions about what it's like being a working actor because that's kind of not a thing you hear about a lot outside of people who've already made it so yeah again that's bsgpod.com uh feel free to check us out there oh one other thing i feel like we should also plug this thing because it's super cool uh this is not the first podcast that dylan and i have worked on together we put out a podcast we launched it about a year ago a little bit yeah almost exactly a year ago holy cow that's so weird right uh it's a podcast (laughs) called the magical history of knox county it is a narrative audio drama show that we wrote with a bunch of our friends from college uh it's eight episodes super bingeable kind of a spooky buddy comedy uh is the best way I can think of it. I would, I would say it's a comedy, yeah. It's a comedy. It takes some pretty dark and dramatic turns. It's a fun show. Uh, we were nominees at the DC Web Fest for Best Podcast, which was super cool. Um, Dylan plays the main character. I was the voice hey. director and did a couple of bit parts in it. It's super cool. And you can check that out at MagicalHistoryPodcast.com or find us on iTunes. But yeah, give that a listen if you want i think it's super cool but obviously i would think that because i helped to make it i hate the main character's voice (laughs) (laughs) i can't think of anything else for us to plug once again thank you thank you thank you for listening thank you in advance for sharing as i'm sure every single one of you will um (laughs) don't disappoint me we're watching we're always watching uh we have been backstage gaming thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day we'll talk to you next week thank you very much